Renters more likely to experience financial distress and loneliness, according to a new report. Why isn't Ottawa doing more to protect Canadians from the growing problem of corporate gouging? U.S. proposes U.N. resolution calling for temporary ceasefire in Gaza. And WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange may be near the end of his long fight to avoid extradition to the United States. Good morning. It's Tuesday, February 20th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. We start this morning with a new report which finds that renters are more likely than homeowners to experience a lower quality of life, including financial distress and loneliness. Uday Rana at Global News writes that the New Statistics Canada report, based on data collected in 2021 and 2022, showed that renters were more than 15 percentage points more likely to report difficulty in meeting financial needs and at least 11 percentage points less likely to report high overall life satisfaction than homeowners. The report said, quote, tenants were also less likely to report a strong sense of belonging to their community and were more likely to report feelings of loneliness, unquote. According to 2021 census data, 20.9% of households in Canada lived in unaffordable housing and 7.7% spent more than half of their income on shelter costs. In Toronto, 30.3% of households lived in unaffordable housing with 12.6% spending at least half of their incomes on shelter costs. 29.6% of people living in Vancouver spent half of their income on shelter costs. Federal housing advocate Marie-Josée Houle is referenced in the story as saying that renters in co-ops pay up to $6,000 per year less for their accommodation than those in commercial rentals. According to Houle, 20 to 30 percent of Canada's rental housing stock is owned by institutional investors. 30, whoa, 20 to 30 percent of Canada's rental housing stock is owned by people who are trying to leverage their investments to make money. That is a disaster. Here's Ul, quote, first of all, the financialization of housing and the negative effects must be dealt with. Secondly, the protection of renters must be a priority. And finally, the government must invest in increasing housing availability costs across the market, unquote. Now, let's also remember that in 2021-2022, the odds were higher that you'd get COVID if you lived in an apartment. I mean, it's the same thing today, but this is from when the data was taken. This means that you were more likely to be lower income, living in shared dwellings, or renting. It doesn't enter the story at all, but it's a critical piece about the differential impact of COVID on people based on where they lived, both the health impact and whether or not they were going to actually get COVID or how many times they would get COVID, but also the psychological impact of catching COVID when you can't control your internal space the way that an owner can. There's so many pieces to the story and, you know, Global News gave us a very slight taste. Turning now to the growing phenomenon of what people call shrinkflation. I don't call it that, though. I hate that term. I think it's just creative profiteering. CBC's Sophia Harris writes that Canadians are becoming increasingly fed up with shrinkflation. I think that we're always fed up with it. I don't ever like that. It's like, no, it's an issue and we hate it. And we hated it 10 years ago and we hated it 20 years ago and we hate it now. But shrinkflation is a tactic where companies reduce the volume or weight of a product, but not the price. In many cases, few changes are made to the packaging, which makes the shrinkage harder to detect. But then you open your box of noodles 
bottles and realize that it's like more than half empty. That widespread disdain for shrinkflation has prompted some countries to take action. Some, not Canada, of course, but anyway. Since 2022, Brazil has mandated that manufacturers declare volume or weight reductions on product labels for a period of six months. Starting on March 1st, Hungary will mandate that large companies do the same for two months. South Korea will soon introduce similar rules, according to a recent statement by that country's deputy prime minister. France has asked the European Union to approve its plan to make large retailers inform shoppers for a period of three months when a product has been reduced. Meanwhile, major French grocer Carrefour has already started posting signs in the stores to help customers identify downsized products. Harris references Jordan LaBelle, a food marketing professor at Concordia University, who says that Canada should consider adopting similar rules. Quote, why can't they put a little asterisk, a little window box on the packaging at the front of the pack and just indicate that it's been changed? Unquote. I mean, they can, obviously. They could do that. They won't do that because they don't like doing anything that forces manufacturers to do anything and possibly cut into their profits. That's why. But of course they could do that. In an email to CBC News, Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada said it's currently funding several research projects into retail practices, including shrinkflation, that are harmful to Canadians, which isn't probably what CBC News asked of them. I imagine the question that CBC asked was, hey, Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada, what are you doing to stop shrinkflation? Are you doing the things that these other countries are doing? Maybe they didn't ask that question, but we don't have that information. What we do have is their response, which is that they will be funding research projects. Mm. That's not going to fix this. That's just funding research, which is well and good, but uh, it's not actually going to address the problem. We know why it's harmful. We don't need research to tell us why this is harmful. You could fund the research, but let's not pretend that we don't know what the solution is here. It's price controls. The solution, in some measure, is price controls. If we want to control the amount of money, we pay for certain things. You could mandate that certain quotas of certain staples be priced at certain levels. That is mandatable. And then the packaging doesn't actually matter. In fact, it does actually operate like that. You're not going to get to the store and get a dozen eggs and open it up and find out that there's only nine eggs in it. Those are highly regulated products. The same thing could be done for things like cereals and pastas and drinks and whatever. Now, combine this with the last story where 30% of the housing market of the rental market is financialized, plus this, that we have given wholesale control of our food supply to corporations whose primary goal is to make money, and you start to get a picture as to why we have an affordability crisis in this country. Next, the United States has drafted a UN Security Council resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire in the Gaza Strip and opposing an Israeli ground offensive on the southern city of Rafah. The U.S. has put forward the text after Algeria on Saturday requested that the council vote on its draft resolution, which would demand an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Linda Thompson-Greenfield, the U.N. ambassador to the United Nations, quickly signaled that it would be vetoed. Al Jazeera reports that the draft resolution said the Security Council should underscore, quote, its support for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza as soon as practical based on the formula of all hostages being released, unquote, while also, quote, lifting all barriers to the provision of humanitarian assistance at scale, unquote, in Gaza. The U.S. draft also warns Israel to not launch a ground offensive in Rafah, saying, quote, the Security Council should underscore that such a major ground offensive should not proceed under the current circumstances. Circumstances, unquote. 
Israel has said it plans to storm Rafah, despite the fact that 1.4 million people are living there seeking shelter. That's 1.4 million of the 2.3 million people who live in Gaza in total. Those plans have prompted widespread international concern that such a move would kill large numbers of civilians and sharply worsen the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, which is already on the brink of famine, according to the United Nations. Reporting from UN headquarters in New York, Al Jazeera's diplomatic editor, James Bays, says Washington's draft resolution appeared to show a significant change in language. Bays explains, quote, for the first time, the U.S. is proposing the word ceasefire. That is significant because Israel did not want the word ceasefire in any resolution. And now it is the U.S. which is proposing it, unquote. It is not immediately clear when or if the U.S. draft resolution would be put to a vote. This draft resolution comes as the U.N.'s top court opened a week of hearings into the legality of Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories, with more than 50 states due to address the judges. Could these hearings at the International Court of Justice, in addition to the ruling that Israel is plausibly committing genocide, be influencing Washington? Or is it the massive protests that we've seen all across the United States, sustained and amazing protests? Or is it Biden's tanking polling numbers, making the administration think twice about their support for Israel? Perhaps. But until Biden is willing to withhold military equipment and the billions of dollars of taxpayer money from Israel, it is unlikely anything will change on the ground. And finally, to the latest in the Kafkaesque persecution of Julian Assange. The WikiLeaks founders' fight to avoid extradition to the United States may be nearing an end following a protracted legal saga in the United Kingdom that's included seven years inside the Ecuadorian embassy and five years in a high-security prison. Starting today, the UK High Court has scheduled two days of arguments over whether Assange can appeal his transfer. If the court doesn't allow the appeal to go forward, he will be sent across the Atlantic. Brian Milley of the Associated Press writes that Assange's wife, Stella Assange, says that the decision is a matter of life and death for the 52-year-old whose health has deteriorated during his time in custody. Quote, his life is at risk every single day he stays in prison, unquote. Stella Assange said Thursday, quote, if he's extradited, he will die, unquote. Assange has been indicted in the United States on 18 charges over WikiLeaks' publication of hundreds of thousands of classified documents and files. Among them was a video of a 2007 Apache helicopter attack by American forces in Baghdad that killed 11 people, including two Reuters journalists. Prosecutors argue he conspired with U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning to hack into a Pentagon computer and release secret diplomatic cables and military files on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. If convicted, his lawyers fear he could receive a prison term of up to 175 years. Assange and his supporters argue he acted as a journalist to expose U.S. military wrongdoing and is protected under press freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment of the American Constitution. Melly explains that if the London court rejects Assange's plea for full appeal, he could be extradited to the U.S. once British officials approve his removal. If Assange is extradited to the United States, it is very likely he'll die in prison for the crime of informing the public of war crimes. The precedent that that would set for journalists and publishers is terrifying. Remember that Assange isn't American, right? Like he's completely detached from the American apparatus. It's that he leaked American documents. But then what would stop Russia or China from doing the exact same thing to a foreign citizen if they exposed facts that the state found embarrassing or classified? It's a terrible precedent. And anybody who cares about press freedom should absolutely care about the case of Julian Assange. 
Those are your headlines for Tuesday, February 20th. I'm Nora. It is Tuesday. It's Sandy and Nora Day. And so that means a new episode comes out in a couple of hours. It is about Pharmacare. Are we going to get Pharmacare on March 1st? Uh, there's a spoiler alert uh, on that episode. Um, we give you the answer to that, and uh, you will not be surprised by it. <laughs> you are listening to this podcast at sandynora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed or anywhere you get your podcasts. Production assistance for this episode from Mary Newman. I hope you have a wonderful Tuesday. And, uh, you know, new episode out just in time for you to have your breakfast if you're in B.C.